Welcome to The Lawyerist Podcast, a series of discussions with entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. Lawyerist supports attorneys building client-centered and future-oriented law firms through community, content, and coaching, both online and through The Lawyerist Lab. And now, here are the co-authors of The Small Firm Roadmap and your podcast hosts. Hi, I'm Stephanie Everett. And I'm Jennifer Wiggum. And this is episode 354 of the Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. In today's episode, Zach is talking with Lori Gonzalez on the recent regulatory reform regarding non-lawyer ownership. Today's podcast is brought to you by Latera, Text Expander, and Rankings.io. We wouldn't be able to do this show without their support, so stay tuned because we're going to tell you more about them later on. So Stephanie... Last month, you did a session for our Lapsters that you called the one tip to change your life this quarter. And then you actually did that tip. So can you tell me a little bit about what this life-changing tip is? Yeah, I mean, I should preface it by saying, you know, we are business owners. And so we do get some more luxuries in life. But I realized that I was wasting a lot of mental energy around things in my house that just simply weren't getting done. I mean, I think one of the examples I gave is I had a sink that had been clogged up for like six months. I mean, it it was beyond being clogged up. I feel like like the stopper got literally stopped. They had to replace the whole pipe. Like it was a little dramatic. <laughs> but yeah. But I say that to say like for six months, every time I went into my bathroom, I would see that sink and have this thought, oh, I need to call the plumber. I mean, we were fortunate that we had two sinks. So I just used my husband's sink. But still, every single time I saw that sink, it was like this thing, right? And I bet we all can think of examples of that in our life of things in your house or things in your life that you just know you need to take care of and you just can't seem to get to them. So what I did is I hired a personal assistant to come to our house and help us with household management and other things in our life. So this is a part-time position. I mean, it's not like I could justify a full-time person. Uh, I mean, maybe one day, but you know, for 10 hours a week, I now have um, this amazing person that I've hired, Brianna. I love her. I'm just going to give her a shout out. And she comes to my house and she's just taking care of all of these things, right? Like she's She'll go shopping for me. She'll run errands. She's returning all the things that I buy online that I don't need or don't fit that I would normally just keep in a pile until I like somehow went past the return stage. And now I'm stuck with these random (laughs) Amazon items. (laughs) Yeah, I know that feeling. Yeah, like, like she's going to the post office and making that happen. And then, you know, occasionally she's organizing my home office and She's available if I need her to pick up my daughter from school or or other things, but she's just kind of helping me take care of all the other things in life that need to be taken care of. Yeah. I mean, that sounds amazing. And I'll, I'll just ask, you know, we had some lobsters in our session last time that had objections to that. Like they thought their spouse wouldn't agree to it. They thought it was something for other people, people who aren't them. But I know that you had some good advice on that front. Do you remember what that was? Yeah, I mean, one thing we talked about is, I mean, I kind of took them through lots of different areas where people get help in their life. And childcare probably is the first one that comes to mind because 
In today's world, we've all sort of embraced the idea that it's okay to hire help with your child. And I've done that since Abigail has been born. She's 10 now. So I've had every variation of child help in my life from like a live-in au pair to part-time after school help and all the things in between. And so what I said to them is like, for a lot of us, you have embraced this concept, but just in different ways. So maybe you have someone who comes and helps you clean your house, you know, every week or every other week, or maybe yard service. And so I kind of showed them a scale of there's lots of different ways to kind of fill in our team and get help. And so all I'm suggesting is a new way and maybe another take on that way. And for a lot of people, I feel like it made it not so hard of a jump that they were like, oh, yeah, this is something that I could embrace and do. For the people who were worried about their spouses, I don't know, we talked about that. And I was like, you know, for my husband at first, he was a little skeptical, but I was like, listen, as a woman, and there's lots of studies and, re- and research out there around this, Absolutely. like he and I both run a business and he for sure helps out around the house. I am not trying to, in fact, he does the majority of the cooking. I mean, like he does his fair share. I'm not trying to say he doesn't, but I still hold the household management in my head, right? Like, right. I'm the one responsible ultimately for scheduling the service repairman or whatever happens. I mean, if I really asked him, he would do it. But let's just be honest, it kind of falls to me. Yeah. And the asking (laughs) is a duty in itself to be able to delegate and ask within in the house to have somebody else that manages your house that way really frees up so much time. And it, you know, I think brings some equality in the relationship, too. So, yeah, I think it's a wonderful idea. I mean, what I challenged our labsters to do was to think about their week and think about what is it that's a pain point that comes up for you. So for some people, like cooking was a huge thing where they're like, I've just finished my work day and now I'm going to go home and I know I need to eat healthy and I'm going to argue with my spouse or partner about who's going to cook. And like we talked about it, right? Like this is something that happens for a lot of people. And I was like, you know, I did the research Having a private chef, which again, sounds very privileged and and is a luxury, but it's not Beyonce luxury. Like there's companies out there now, they'll send someone to your home for twice a week and they'll prepare your food and like stock it in the fridge. And, and it wasn't Beyonce expensive is what I'm yeah. going to say, right? Like it's still a costly, but then for this one service I found in Atlanta it was like $300 a week. And when I shared that with some of our labsters, they're like, I'm spending that ordering out, right? Like I... <laughs> or maybe close to it. So again, these aren't necessarily things that I appreciate are available to everyone in the world. But for a lot of folks, it was like, when you think about where you're investing your time and your money and your energy. And so we even talked about like those food delivery services, and there's a whole host of them out there. I'm not going to name them, but, but that's like a variation of that. So maybe you don't want to have a private chef come in and cook for you, but maybe you could have a food delivery service that sends you those, you know, ready to cook meals. Right. And your time is money. I think that's what we always forget. And even in your professional life and your personal life, you need to quantify the hours in terms of money. So if you are saving time by having these, these different tasks done for you, you are getting a monetary value in your time back. For sure. And, you know, like I said, I hired my personal assistant and she's, it's just 10 hours a week you know, I'm paying her $20 an hour and it's pretty approachable. And I set up payroll in the whole nine yards. But the, what I've really noticed in the first couple of weeks since she's been working with me is my mental space. 
I have mm-hmm. new energy. I walk around the house in the morning and I feel like this sense of peace and comfort because I look at things and I just know, like I'm not looking at broken things. right? Like, yeah. And then what it's doing is it, it's freeing me up to show up to work with a different spirit, a renewed spirit. I've been getting up earlier and I'm excited to tackle new projects. And so that's the part that's hard to quantify is that mental energy it's freeing up. Yeah. That is so important. I really like that. That's convincing me now. Yeah. So we probably should wrap this up, but my takeaway for everyone is kind of do an inventory of your life and really think about, you know, what pain points are coming up for you and is there a way to solve that differently? Because I guess the message is you don't have to do all the things. And just like we tell you as a business owner, delegate, delegate, delegate. You can do that in your life, you know, in your personal life too. The same rules apply. Absolutely. Hey, y'all. Zach here. And welcome back to the Lawyers Podcast. With me today is Lori Gonzalez of Rainacorp, which is a process management consulting company for lawyers and legal tech. Lori, thanks for joining me today. I'm so excited to be here, Zach. So I would normally talk to somebody in that area about process management consulting and all that, but we're not really here for that. You know, if people want to learn a little bit more about that, you've got Tons of CLEs and presentations out there. You've presented at ClioCon. You've been at multiple ABA tech shows and countless other legal technology venues. What I am interested in is you also sat on a committee out of California that was making regulation change suggestions. Am I kind of saying that halfway right? That's exactly right. Um, I joke all the time it was the task force that was making regulation regulation changes. So it certainly was one of the first major movements Mm -hmm. in the U.S. from the standpoint of a state bar taking that on. And it was for anyone who decides they want to hunt it down, lots of boring and exhausting meeting notes and minutes exist in the world, but it was the task force on access through innovation of legal services through the state bar of California. Okay. And so that's what I'd like to pick your brain about here. You know, we've got a lot of stuff going on in that space, that alternative business structure space, the UPL space, all all of that. And I'd kind of like to flesh a little bit of that out and talk about what's going on with it. So I think what we're seeing, and it's really exciting to see it happening in so many places simultaneously now, right? When we were doing this a couple of years ago in California, there were some, some beginning rumblings, but really California had taken the most organized approach, I think, at that time. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so what our task force was doing was specifically looking at how regulations are impeding innovation of the legal services. And we did that by looking at both the idea of limited scope representation. I'll share that wasn't as big of a focus for us, Mm -hmm. I think because that's well-established, right? I don't think in the legal space, there's a lot of controversy around limited scope representation. I think instead, we're just more trying to figure out how to do it effectively. Right. So I think what you're seeing in these sandboxes and these various other places is a really heavy focus on a couple of things. One is non-lawyer ownership. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is by far one of the most controversial of the groups, uh, or at least causes (laughs) the most discussion, maybe. Consternation. Yes. We'll say. <laughs> yeah, I think that's, yeah. a, that's a good word uh, for that. 
but also a really heavy focus on paraprofessionals, empowering paraprofessionals in the legal industry to provide actual legal services mm-hmm. uh, versus our current model, which is obviously working underneath the supervision of lawyers. Right. And certainly there have been a couple of experiments out there and we can talk about those. Some of those have failed magnificently. So I think there's some cool lessons in those. But then there's also this idea of changing who can provide legal services. What really is the practice of law? And instead of thinking of it as a one-to-one solution, one lawyer to one client, which is really what all of our models are built on right now, Mm -hmm. uh, how can we provide one lawyer, one set of legal services to a very large audience? Uh, And that's really, I think, where the real interest is in, in improving access. Absolutely. And I think that that is not only the benefit, the thing that we see where we go, yes, that is that is absolutely what we want to do. But it, that also has that built in detriment of, OK, well, we feel as lawyers that some, for lack of a better way of saying it, some boogeyman corporation is going to come in and start selling law to a ton of people at a bad level. Right. Selling bad law, bad services to people. And that's really what we're what we're thinking, I think, when most lawyers go, no, this is not a good thing. We recognize that there is a positive aspect of it, absolutely. But the negative aspect, or at least what we think could be a negative aspect of it, generally outweighs in a lot of people's minds. So this is a place where I'm pretty vocal about how we can sort of change the ideas that we we hold around that. And number one is what I believe is the most important thing we can do in the legal industry is give choice back to the consumer. So Mm -hmm. consumer-centric and informed consent, these are really how we empower consumers to decide what kind of legal services they want. And I don't believe that lawyers really should be setting the final decisions of what kind of legal services we require consumers to have. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes that can seem on the face of it, everybody, including myself, wants to go, well, of course, they should have the best of all worlds and it should be perfect and it should be amazing and there should never be a mistake. But if you really start to compare it to, for instance, the medical field, mm-hmm. we would never allow a doctor to decide what level of medical care that a person is required to have, right? Mm-hmm. I get to make choices about my medical care based on my situation, which may be financial issues. It Mm. may be simply preference. It may be that maybe I don't want to have surgery, right? Right. Maybe I'm never going to have surgery, even if it's the best thing for me. I get to choose. What we've built in the legal system is the surgeons have decided that only surgery is the best and only option you can have. Really, we've trained real surgeons to do all the things And then we wonder why, one, we don't have enough market fit. We can't meet all the needs. And two, Mm -hmm. why we have a lot of really unhappy surgeons because they're like giving massages, right? Like we have a lot of really skilled, really, really educated, uh, really amazing professionals doing work that is far below their actual capacity. And so I'm looking at how do we build models Uh, that empower consumers to decide whether they want just okay legal services, because that's what they can afford. 
Right. And I think what you're, what you're talking about there is I really want to kind of hang on one of those, but I think you're talking about two things there. One is the idea that me as a consumer, I can choose to get an 80% on the test. Mm-hmm. I can choose to say, you know, that's all I want. I can recognize my appetite for risk and say, well, I want the $30 contract right. <laughs> you right. know, instead of the $7,000 contract, because this really isn't that big of a deal to me. And if something goes wrong, then, then perfectly fine. And I think the other aspect in there is saying, not only are we saying that you have to have surgery for all of life's tiny problems, but even if we're not going to have surgery for all of life's tiny little problems, a surgeon has to do it. And that, and that for me is one of the most powerful, like, I think that's when it clicked for me where Mm -hmm. we're really struggling because the reality is all of the different types of legal services that can and should be available, all of those require different skill sets, different Mm -hmm. talents, uh, different approaches. And again, it's, I don't know if it's brilliant or lazy to kind of go back to the medical field for the analogies, but the person giving me, you know, physical therapy is going to be far different than the person who performs the actual surgery. And, and mm-hmm. the, the way we approach how we build that entire experience requires so many different types of models and professionals and those kind of things. And so when we actually look at things like paraprofessionals, we're starting to address some of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're starting to say, you know, sometimes a limited technician, a document, for instance, you know, a legal document associate or a legal document prepared. These are popular. And I'm not exactly sure how many states we have these in, probably five, maybe six right now, where there's some certification you can get as a Mm -hmm. legal document preparer. That is a very interesting way to build a low cost version of what most lawyers are doing in a lot of small law anyway, which is really building out some basic documents and sort of helping people through the entry level to those courts. But that in itself is, I think, too short-sighted for me. So ironically, I'm I'm the person as a former paralegal who's like, well, I don't love those models as the answer for a lot. I think they're a good part of the strategy. They're a little part of the strategy. They're part of the plan. Uh, but I think ultimately what you're saying is, hey, let's build the same exact model, but let's charge less and see if that works better. And then what you're really saying is, let's ask people to do the same amount of work for less money and hope mm-hmm. they do a better job than we're actually doing as lawyers in this space. And that just doesn't, I don't see the long-term benefits of that. And I think that's why we've seen places like Washington where that that has failed pretty magnificently. And A, I love the idea of failing magnificently, yes. failing in a way where we learn from it. You know, you look at what happened in Washington and if you really get in and unpack it, you can see a lot of different ways that we can improve. And so looking at it and saying that means that limited scope paraprofessionals is not a good idea. That is not the takeaway on that. That's right. Because because it didn't fail. It failed magnificently. You know, we we got some data from it. Uh, and there's great lessons in it. I think what one of the things that I think we learned in that scenario was there was not a lot of participation. Mm-hmm. And again, as a former paralegal who has now built her very own business doing great work, the idea of trying to build a successful legal services business 
by simply charging less and hoping more people show up. We're not in any better position. In my opinion, most limited technicians or paraprofessionals, we've learned all the same lessons that lawyers have. So it's the same business model. It's just a cheaper Mm -hmm. version of it. And so I think that seeing the lack of participation, that was twofold. One, it's still a very difficult model itself. And I think two, quite frankly, the requirements, I vetted those requirements early on. I was excited to consider Washington as a a place I would try out. Mm -hmm. And quite frankly, I decided I could go to law school easier and probably faster than I could. And that's, I might be a little facetious there, but honestly, the amount of qualifications were so intense. I think that's why you saw just really, I think the entire program maybe had, it was less than 40 licensees uh, when I looked at it in 2019. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's, that didn't solve what we were trying to solve there. But I think your point is very good of it was never going to solve what we're trying to solve because it is short-sighted. That's kind of a Band-Aid sort of aspect as opposed to saying, okay, well, how do we solve this with technology? How do we solve this by having one person, one lawyer solving multiple things at the same time? I think the one-to-one, one lawyer to one client is a difficult thing to get over because when I think of the kind of paraprofessionals doing aspects of the legal work, we automatically, or I think a lot of us go to the dentist's practice. And this is actually a pretty good system that's set up. You walk in, you see the dentist for the part that needs the dentist. Right. But I don't know very many lawyers that want their practice to actually run like that, where they are in that aspect, going from room to room to room. And so even if we did get this going, the attorneys don't want this. You know, it, it's not something that makes people go, yeah, I want to, I want to operate like that. So I think what's interesting is I think we do have niches in law where that, that is, that has happened. So I think of yes. PI, PI firms, right? Bankruptcy firms. We certainly have some estate firms. I think we certainly have some practice areas where that model is, is built and is working. And ironically, i I believe you find that those niches are probably the ones who have a higher adoption rate on tech, who have a lot more emphasis on process improvement, business, like actually build operations and focus on operations, um, Mm -hmm. focus on staff differently. And so I do think we've built some of those, but it does still require, it's still technically a one-to-one model in my mind, because at the end of the day, the dentist has to like has to look at the teeth, right? So the lawyer still has to like, there's still a touch on that. What I get really excited about and why I push very much so for ownership, like really opening up the idea of who can own a company or firm that does legal services is Mm -hmm. what I love about technology is there's literally nothing it can do. Every time I think, man, I wish there was a thing, right? There's always a thing, Zach. Now, whether it's a viable business model that can survive, that's the question. Right. But the capability exists. And what we are missing in the legal field is the ability to innovate. We do not have, we are missing two really vital things that I think are required for real innovation. One is actual investment. Mm-hmm. Nothing happens without dollars. And in order to truly innovate, 
you need dollars to burn. You need to be able to fail. You need to be able to have enough money coming in to try things magnificently, let them fail magnificently, pivot and try again. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the amount of lawyers as a profession who have that kind of innovation burn money is just mm-hmm. minute. It's always going to be as in every other industry. Right. So you really need those investment dollars, but you also need non-lawyer brains. Innovation only happens when we bring in multidisciplinary approaches to these things. Mm-hmm. And one of my favorite things to read, there's a great study that was done by Richard Larry Richards or Richards Larry. I can never remember which one it is. <laughs> wrote a whole thing called Hurting Cats, and it's all about lawyer personalities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you actually read it, the things that make a great innovator, exactly the opposite of what makes a great lawyer. So I, I don't believe we have, now I know plenty of innovative lawyers. It's different, right. right? But innovation as a whole is a science. It's a thing. It's a, it's a skill set, and it requires mm-hmm. some things that actually are much more difficult if you're going to be a good lawyer, right? Mm-hmm. So how do we invite people in to help us innovate? Well, I'd love to say that you can just say, come on, let's do something cool. But we all know that's not how the world works. Right. Without real skin in the game, no one is, no one's substantially showing up. And that's where we are right now. Well, and right now we're, we're going to take a short little break to hear a word from our sponsors. And we're going to come back and, and unpack a little bit of that. So we'll be, we'll be right back. Support for today's episode comes from Text Expander. Minimize effort, maximize productivity with Text Expander. Text Expander helps you work faster and smarter so you can focus your time on your most important work. Drive faster results in three steps. One, create. Make snippets of text for support responses, sales outreach, or even common emails to save them in Text Expander. Two, trigger. Just type a few characters and watch the snippet automatically expand your text. You can add fill in the blank or more complex functionality to customize your message. Three, share. Share snippets across your organization. Your team can customize and insert the text in any app on Mac, Windows, Chrome, or iOS with a few keystrokes. Are you a startup looking to scale? Text Expander is here to help you on your journey. Check out Text Expander for Startups, a program that's specifically designed to help startup teams communicate more consistently, accurately, and efficiently. Show listeners get 20% off their first year. Visit textexpander.com forward slash podcast to learn more about Text Expander. Support for today's episode comes from Rankings.io, helping hyper-competitive personal injury attorneys dominate first-page rankings through search engine optimization to become better recognized as the leading law firm in your metro. Rankings is solely focused on SEO for personal injury law firms. You'll work with an entire team of SEO specialists dedicated to helping clients dominate search results with unparalleled industry expertise. Rankings focuses on proof, not promises, by delivering results and never leaving their clients in the dark. You will receive monthly reports that give a full snapshot of where you stand as you watch your firm climb to the first page of Google and generate high-value leads. Most importantly, you'll be one of an elite few. Rankings' unrelenting conviction to be the best drives them to do everything to ensure the personal injury law firms working with them are dominating the search results. To see if you're a fit, visit rankings.io forward slash lawyerist to get started. Today's podcast is brought to you by Latera. Delivering high quality work on time and on budget is what matters most to your clients. Latera helps law firms maximize client retention rates, increase profit margins, and enhance lawyer happiness. In short, 
They simplify complex workflows by connecting legal teams to the data they need every day. The result? End-user happiness. Most of the world's largest law firms, boutique firms, and corporate legal departments trust Latera to help their legal teams manage all of their documents, deals, cases, and data. Are you ready to join them? Latera is excited to hear about the challenges facing your organization, show you their software in action, or simply discuss whatever else might be top of mind. Get a demo with their document experts today by visiting latera.com forward slash lawyerist. And we're back. And Lori and I were just talking about non-lawyer ownership in order to spur innovation, you know, needing some sort of investment in law firms and more than what kind of the legal field really has. We're talking about major outside dollars into law firms or into small practices in order to spur this innovation because we have to entice innovative people to come and work for us. But the, the argument I hear is that this creates a problem for the lawyer because we have an ethical obligation to our clients and then we have an obligation to our investors for profits. So we have these two poles there and there've been many articles written on this that have a uh, question as to which one of those is going to win in people's firms. So um, whew, this is the part where maybe I'm not the most popular speaker on your podcast because <laughs> I have a lot of feels about this uh, in general. So I think I'm just going to start with the fallacy that I believe exists when we say, well, if we let people give us money and then we owe them an obligation, that's going to interfere with our obligation to our clients. That implies that all the lawyers out here running their own practices don't have that same obligation to themselves and their family and their the, the other partners. Making money to sustain your law firm is a requirement whether a lawyer owns it or someone else has a stake in it. And so this idea that lawyers are so malleable, so impressionable, so easily swayed by outside investors, quite frankly, the way I approach that argument is if that is true, then y'all shouldn't be in charge anyway, right? And so you should not be self-regulated. If you're telling right. me that simply having someone require you to do things so that you can keep getting their money means you'll make bad choices, then you're already making bad choices because you already are trying to earn a living doing this. Right? Do I believe that we should always ensure that we're providing a place where we are not taking advantage of consumers? Absolutely. Also, isn't that true of every industry and every business, right? Mm -hmm. Again, it goes back to me. There is this often argument that somehow lawyers are more ethical or understand better <laughs> how to be more ethical when it comes to consumers. And my probably number one argument to that is y'all are failing 86% of the industry, of the consumers, how ethical are we in legal when literally 86% of the needs are unmet? Right. To me, that is the number one sort of argument against where we're doing a great job all on our own of ethically providing legal services to the market. We fail the majority of them. And so I understand where that comes from. It is something near and dear to my heart, making sure people are not taking advantage of Holy cow, Zach, I, you know, I'm a perpetual volunteer uh, and mm -hmm. spend way too much time thinking through those things as well. So I just have more faith 
in not only our industry and the lawyers who work it, but also, you know, in the models themselves. The market works and generally we are a capitalist society. The market gets to decide. Right. I think again, that's the other piece. We we cannot perfect our way out of competition, lesser mm-hmm. than services, uh, things that aren't as good as we would make them. And my argument again is, and we shouldn't be trying mm-hmm. because that is why we have such a hard time meeting all of those needs. Right. And right. the real question becomes, is less than services better than no services? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that really is, to me, that's one of the things that it, that it absolutely boils down to. But I also don't, I don't run away from the idea necessarily that we can solve some of these problems, even the ones that people are bringing up. So I used to build athletic fields when I was younger. Um, I used to drive a tractor around in circles over and over I and over. I love this. And so I would, I drove bulldozers and excavators and, and I told my mother I moved dirt for a living. And we would have problems on the, on the job site all the time. Everybody has problems in their job. And one of the things I learned very early on, my boss would say to me, Zach, don't come to me with problems. Come to me with solutions. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate that there are problems in these ideas. But just being a naysayer isn't really helping anybody. Well, and for an industry that is is meant to be sort of the arbiters of justice mm-hmm. and, and laws and regulations, I sometimes think we forget what, what they actually are supposed to do. You cannot regulate your way into innovation. You cannot regulate your way into improvements and new ideas and new ways to do things. That is meant after a problem has actually happened to learn to adjust so that that problem does not continue. Right. And what we have done is tried to create a regulation for every possible bad outcome that could happen, but that hasn't actually happened yet, ever happened because we've never even allowed it to begin with. Right. We, we've tried to regulate the what ifs. And that is the number one constrainer, I think, of why we cannot really move forward in the industry. You can't regulate what ifs. Uh, what ifs are not worth regulating. No, no. And I think that's actually a really good lead into, you know, what are we doing? These things that we're, that the states are doing to address these issues. You know, we've seen a sandbox in Utah at this mm-hmm. point. We've actually seen Arizona has gone past the sandbox and said, we're in. You know, they pushed yep. all the chips in and, they, and they're going. At the time of recording, I believe Florida has made the suggestion to go ahead and open up a sandbox there are places all over right now that are that are looking at this idea. So, so what's the sandbox? What is the idea there? We throw that around. It's a place to figure out the what ifs at some point, potentially. It's an experimentation. Mm-hmm. Again, this is where I just make everybody mad all at the same time because, you know, <laughs> it's my favorite thing to do. I'm not a fan of the sandboxes. And let me say, I'm, I'd rather the sandboxes than nothing. Right. But I worry that the sandboxes, because they are so limited, it, it is so the sandboxes themselves, most of them are building a very specific process where you need to mm-hmm. apply. You have to agree to certain, not only certain uh, ways of, of sort of conducting yourself, 
and the and the company and your team. But also you have to agree to providing data or tracking certain data and those kind of mm-hmm. things. All of those, which I absolutely 100% believe in, in theory. But I think what happens is when you build something that is experimental by nature and has these very constrictive sort of uh, requirements, that just means a lot of people aren't willing to play in the sandbox, right? Mm-hmm. And so I do worry a little bit about the data that comes out of those kind of places. We could actually prove a point that we're trying not to prove by simply saying, well, no one showed up. Well, you know, people with real investment dollars may not be willing to experiment. And I think, so I think there's some, some potential there that, that we cause, we don't move the needle as far as we want to. And mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of radical problems need radical change and those kind of things. On the flip side, what I am very excited about is most of the sandboxes are, I think, really taking this approach of as long as we can see the value in the idea and we can see a viable business model, right, in the idea, mm-hmm. then we're willing to let all let everything's up for grabs. And so even Arizona, which has not really created a sandbox, uh, the licensing requirements, still a very intense process. I'm so excited. I think a next episode coming up is with Alan Rodriguez and yes. also was on the task force and is now a majority owner in a law firm as a non-lawyer. And so I'm really excited to listen into what he brings to the table and how he went through that. But I think that's what you're seeing is these sandboxes are for a legal Zoom, I believe has been approved for some form of service through the Arizona. Was it Arizona? Yes. Yeah, it was Arizona, I believe. And so, you know, all very exciting to me to see. I'm, I'm very happy to see a super tech-driven, process-driven, non-lawyer partner with a lawyer to see what kind of law firm they can build, as well as see someone like LegalZoom who, you know, clearly understands consumers, right? Mm-hmm. And has built a model that serves just the most basic of here's some fill-in-the-blank forms kind of needs and what they might do in those areas. So I encourage anyone listening to this, man, if you have the energy or the desire, get creative. What would you do if there were no regulatory uh, limits to what you want to do? Right. Because I think that's what we don't talk enough about in these discussions, Zach, is lawyers are actually the losers in regulatory. Anyone who wants to do something around legal who isn't a lawyer, isn't regulated by y'all. They're going to figure that out. It is lawyers who are struggling to break free from those regulations. So I I think that's one of the things that always frustrates me here with talking about, we need to make sure that we can regulate. We need to make sure we can regulate. Right now with the internet, somebody from another country that we had no ability to regulate whatsoever could put a website up and offer contracts in the United States. Uh And we'd have zero ability to keep them from doing that. Okay, well, you want to take their website down. Well, maybe they're not on AWS. Maybe they've got it on their own server, you know? Or even if we could deal with it, it would take a lot of effort. So we've already got the ability for other people to do this. And so I I like how you say that. We're already the ones who are losing in this because we're, we're not able to innovate. We're not, there's a vacuum. There's obviously a vacuum in that space. And one of the things I like about talking about legal Zoom is that they already entered this vacuum previously without 
I don't want to say without permission. Right. But, you know, when LegalZoom started up, I think everybody looked around and thought pretty poorly of them. I think people were very afraid of the level of services that they were going to provide to people. But we've seen two things. One, a lot of people wanted to use LegalZoom. A lot, a lot, a lot of people to the point where there are attorneys out there who are trained in dealing with legal Zoom contracts, you know, but two, they took a risk and they said, okay, no, this isn't uh, unauthorized practice of law and we'll tell you why. And I think that's something to think about as attorneys, even without these sandboxes is even without the idea that, that we can, that we're going to open up, you know, the, the practice of law and not the practice of law, but the ownership and, and open up limited scope representation and things. When does a piece of software practice law? So what's fascinating, I love this conversation because I'm very much, my brain works in patterns, processes. I'm an operations girl, right? Like this is what I live and breathe every day. So whenever you're telling me we shouldn't do something, I'm always like, cool, there's an actual definition that will explain that to me. So what is the practice of law? And I remember, I've been in the legal field 25 plus years. Mm-hmm. I've done lots of crazy things as a profession, as a paraprofessional working under lawyers. I've done lots of things working with lawyers now. And I realized preparing for this task force a couple of years ago, I was like, oh, what is the definition of the practice of law? I should look that up. Even then, even just a couple of years ago, I'm like, there's literally no definition of the practice of law. So how wow. do we hold people accountable for practicing something we can't define mm-hmm. that doesn't even begin to make sense. And it's why we'll always chase others who push mm-hmm. the boundaries because we haven't defined the boundaries. Right. And I don't think we ever will. What's clear to me is creating form documents. Certainly over the years, this is a place where I've been told many times is the practice of law. And I, I just have a real problem with that because I know who's creating those documents in real life in real law firms. And it's very rarely not the lawyers. I've Googled many, many a form and, you know, or reviewed a rule and made those things up. I I think think we've lost some of the understanding of how strategic really lawyering is. Mm -hmm. And the output of a form is not lawyering. And so... It's interesting to me, even with someone like LegalZoom, we've still hindered them. So it's really nothing more than fill in the blanks. Mm-hmm. And ironically, LegalZoom would provide better service and provide less. So whenever I hear the argument, I think there's always the argument of, well, LegalZoom has very terrible contracts. I have to undo that all the time. I hear this a lot right, from lawyers. Right. And I'm like, I actually don't doubt that, but it's because we've limited their ability to help people walk through the decision-making process. Mm-hmm. So we've only let it be fill in the blank. And that's what happens when you can only fill in a blank. Right. But LegalZoom tomorrow could create a better, more effective guided interview process. And mm-hmm. I'm curious if that's what they'll do in Arizona to help people make better choices and make better build better contracts based on their unique situations. And I think they'll build the tech that helps them do that because we also know that exists, right? We're excited about that in the legal field for our own use. Mm -hmm. Um, So how do we then empower that for consumers and how do we get individual lawyers is part of that opportunity instead of being left behind, which is what I'm excited about. Right. 
I'm also excited about that. That's one of the most interesting aspects of this is the small lawyer, small firm being able to pivot. Yes. Being able to offer these things, these services on a larger scale. An attorney who can create a guided interview, which is not difficult to do if you're using something like Lawyer or Document or Knackley or all of these services or Gravity Forms or Ninja Forms. I mean, there's a ton of ways to do these guided interviews, but the lawyer can create the logic gates. The lawyer can create the decision trees, and now they're able to serve more people. Mm -hmm. That's phenomenal, you know, and that helps the smaller attorney not get eaten by the by the larger corporation that's coming in. And the competitive advantage, this is, so if, I think if you're paying attention to tech in the world and like where our world actually is, what do we see happening with all of this automation and tech? A refocus on community and client focus interaction, right? right? So for me, those lawyers who are at the heart and soul of their communities, that is who people trust. That is who people want to see. And so I'm just so excited about this idea of empowering those community lawyers in a way that we're just, we've never seen. And there's so many levels to that. Like we're talking really high level investment and building cool tech tools and brand new ways and things we've never thought of because, you know, mm -hmm. we just, we just don't have the ability to right now. But what if it's simply, you know, brand new baby lawyer connects with really cool operations person to build a better mousetrap? I love these models where we're starting to see lawyers really understand how to provide more than just legal services as part of a holistic approach. So mm -hmm. probate lawyers who also provide Medicare professionals to help people walk through how to obtain both Medicare as they age and end of life decision-making. So we're seeing mm -hmm. these cool life coaches and these other things all being paired together with law firms. Uh, and while we've seen some cool models those are still very limited because again, lawyers have to own it, right? Like right. there's no sweat equity happening in those places. There's no true partnership. There's no real, it's simply hiring people to do those things, which is going to limit how many of those kind of law firms we can build. Absolutely. Well, Lori, I think we've solved all the um, alternative <laughs> business structure problems now. So I think our, our work here is done. Work is done. Yeah. No, but, but really, this, this is a big issue. People need to be talking about it. People need to be innovating in here. And I think it's something that I, I appreciate is, is on a lot of people's minds. And so next week, we've, we've got Alan Rodriguez, like you said. And Lori, it's always fun to talk to you. The same, Zach. I'm excited that your audience is listening to this. And I love that you guys are taking an approach to checking all of this out. And of course, you're my favorite techie lawyer in Tennessee. Don't tell anyone else. I won't. I won't. Nobody will hear this. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Lori. The Lawyerist Podcast is produced by Bailey Tiller and edited by Ryan Croft. Are you ready to implement the ideas we discussed here into your practice? Wondering what to do next? Here are your first two steps. First, if you haven't read the Small Firm Roadmap yet, grab the first chapter for free at lawyerist.com book. Looking for help beyond the book? Let's chat about whether our coaching communities are right for you. Head to lawyerist.com slash community slash lab to schedule a 15-minute call with our community manager. The views expressed by the participants are their own and not endorsed by the Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you.